0: Good morning, Church. Good morning. that's uh, great. So good morning. My name is L.U.H. Um, I know some of you all are from um, screw it, And um, movie night and stuff like that. But for those I don't know, hello. Um, I am the discipleship intern for UBC this year. I work with Erin James Brown as her minion on small group <laughs> curriculums and events and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to get out of Hyde Park for and be up here with you all this morning. Um, so I don't know if any of you all have a family member like this or you are like this yourselves, but my mom is obsessed with genealogy stuff. So she's always watching these shows of Who Do You Think You Are on PBS and telling stories of our own family history. Um, and a couple of years ago, one of my little sisters needed help with a school project and she got really, really into it. She got an Ancestry.com account. Um, and tracked down all of these distant relatives who I didn't know existed. She went back generations and generations and generations, checking census records to confirm stories about various people's occupations and death certificates to see if she could find these clues that would lead us to forgotten gravestones. She even tried to contact the local courthouse archives in order to track down the marriage certificates for this aunt that we didn't know if she was married or not ever. Um, and so I had to think about all of these things recently, too. I had to draw a geneogram for one of the classes I'm in, which is this kind of family tree that details the types of relationships people in your family have with one another. Um, there's lots of little lines and drawings you have to do, on these little symbols. It's cute. Um, and I didn't know a lot of the details beyond what affects my immediate family, so I had to make a late-night phone call to my mom and my dad and my grandmother the night before it's due to figure all this stuff out. Um, and during these conversations, instead of just telling me who was fond of so-and-so and who was pissed off of this other person, um, my mom and my dad and my grandmother ended up telling me all of these stories about the people in my family. And they weren't just descriptions of the type of person, um, you know, my great aunt was or my uncle was. They were stories about generosity and theft and determination and addiction, <clears throat> humility and secrecy, and all of these Feelings and uh, types of relationships that craft a big, big, crazy family. And these conversations were so, so interesting to me. The way that my mom and dad and grandmother's stories coalesced um, and departed from each other at various points. Depending on who I was talking to, the same story of a marriage or a event of falling in love was completely different. Um, and I was left. After ending these phone calls with the sense that these memories are what shapes my reality of my own family, the way that my great-grandfather and my second cousin are known to me is entirely based in my living relatives' recollections of those people. So thinking about this this week with the scripture, this emphasis on genealogy of understanding who somebody is and the context of who their family is is seen over and over and over again in the Bible. we see some really obvious examples of this uh, with the Christian, of the Christian family tree um, in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel where they trace Jesus' ancestors back to Abraham and Adam. Uh, there are entire chapters in Genesis that are dedicated to saying who we got who and almost every single story of a, um, of a hero in the Old Testament begins with a recounting of a noteworthy birth or family narrative. In a way, I think today's scripture passage is kind of the same work, but rather than telling the tale of a particular individual family, the Acts passage does the work of recalling the history or family tree of the whole church, of the entire Christian people. I think it does this through a remembrance or acknowledgement of what God has done and therefore of who God is. Acts 4 demonstrates how telling the stories of our past helps us to understand and process the traumas and troubles of our present. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about what's happening in the story that gets us to this place. Um, but before we get into these eight verses, we need to back up a second, I think, look at what's leading up to this prayer remembrance in our text. So this passage is one of the earliest stories we have detailing how the work of the church continues after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. It's pretty soon after Pentecost, and Peter and John are initially seeing a lot of success in their ministry. 3,000 people have just been baptized, they just healed this uh, disabled man in the name of Jesus, and they are preaching the gospel to hundreds of people who are all gathered on the eastern edge of the temple. But during their message, this group of elite priests and Sadducees interrupt them, and they arrest them for what they're saying. The Sadducees were this aristocratic party that tended to cooperate with Roman authorities in order to maintain their political and social power in the community.
1: They also reject
0: the oral tradition while they were teaching God's word, and they especially oppose the idea of resurrection or any sort of life after death. So when Peter and John are standing up there in front of thousands of people <coughs> preaching Christ's message that eventually leads to salvation, the Sadducees are deeply offended and worried and have them rested. And so they are sitting in jail, and the next day they go in front of the high council, and they declare their intention to continue healing and preaching in the name of Jesus, even as all these priests are scolding them. Peter is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with immense boldness as he declares the necessity of Jesus in understanding God's full picture of salvation. (coughs) The council warns Peter and John to cease their speaking of anything that is at all related to Jesus, and Peter and John basically say, well, no, we're not going to do this. Not a chance. They swear that they are compelled to continue in their work, and the council sees thousands of people that have shown up in support of them. So they find no way to punish them. They're kind of like, there's too many, too many people here, and they let them go. So Peter and John return home to their friends, and they tell them of this event, of this public trial, of this persecution. Their friends are left amazed, the council is left with a big question mark, and that's one of the earliest sparks of resistance to the Christian message has been snuffed out, at least for now. So when Peter and John are retelling this tale to their friends, the very first thing they do as a collective, as a community, is to reach out to God in prayer. They take an action, they take a speech action. The prayer that we're looking at today in this passage is a rich and complex one. It's not a simple request, there's layers of history and stories that weigh upon each line. The people are connecting their understanding of what has just happened to Peter and John with the stories of their ancestors, and how God interacted with and protected their ancestors. In this way, I think they're better able to understand what's happening to them now. So together, they begin this prayer with a kind of you statement, which we use in crafting our college prayers today in this sermon series. Peter and John and the people pray to God, who they call Sovereign Lord. With this description, they deem God as one with complete ownership and power over the earth. And they reiterate that characterization by describing all that God has created and has dominion over. This is a way of reminding themselves that this description of God is accompanied by a kind of safety net and is still relevant for them today. I'm hitting all of those words this morning. Uh, The people continue in their prayer by telling a story of how God has held the traumas of the people in the past, and they connect these present actions with action like God. So we can go to verses 25 and 26. Um, The people who are praying quote a passage from Psalm 2, which God has said through David by the Holy Spirit. In the Psalm, the speaker asks why the nations conspire against the Lord and his anointed. And here, the people adjust their prayer to their own context. So why did the Gentiles rage, and the people imagine vain things, they ask? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. This is kind of a rhetorical question, I think, which really serves to set up their point about God um, predestining these frustrating situations, of people gathering together against Jesus, against the followers, against the church. And the next two lines of this prayer compare this persecution to that which has happened both recently and long ago. The ancient Jewish people suffered under a number of exiles and attacks from foreign kings. Recently, Herod and Pilate participated in traumatizing a vast number of people. The prayer says that they gathered the peoples against Jesus, and in this way, they're playing the role of the, the bad or the king named in the Psalms. But then is now apparently God has allowed this to happen. It says, they gather together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. <clears throat> Peter, John, and the people claim in their prayer that these recent events still fall under God's sovereignty. They are according to God's plan. This recent persecution under the High Council, as well as the persecution of Jesus himself just a few months ago, is just another cycle in a long history of traumatic endurance by God's people. The public proclamation of this prayer is a way of reminding themselves of God. In a way, by claiming and acknowledging their role in the story, they are asserting a kind of agency and power and awareness of what is happening to them and what God is doing. And this is, I think, still an alliance with the will of God. The very framework of this prayer and this passage serves to set themselves up as another generation of people who endure. There's no way Peter and John came home and told everyone about this public trial and everyone suddenly just expected tensions to end right there. Like, no, it wasn't all good. They I expect at least, right, they were rather worried about what the future would hold. And we see later in Acts and in the annals of early Christian history that this is totally true. And I think both Peter and John and all of the disciples of men and women gathered with them, and we ourselves today, we're all relational creatures to each other the people in this room, to the people on the bus, and to the stories of our ancestors. By telling those stories, by remembering what our people have done, and acknowledging the role of God throughout those processes, we can better understand the troubles of our present. <coughs> Often in difficult and dark situations, a path forward seems impossible. We are so weighed down by the now that we get stuck, we can't move. But when we offer stories of the past, in prayer or in narrative, To either learn from or critique, a light emerges, and I think a healing can take place. This happens when we remember who God is and what God has done. God has been with us and cried with us and angered with us amidst all of our past suffering. And I think that God is here with us in the present, too. I think this S-word is also really significant. I think that it is important to consider how processing can be done in a community. Often as individuals, we can forget things about what has happened and about what people have done to us, about who we are. So in times of stress or sorrow, it's necessary that we remind one another of the goodness and potential within ourselves, as well as the faithfulness of God. We have to lean on one another. When somebody forgets who they are or how God sees them, we have a duty to speak truth to one another. And when as a community, we've been traumatized and hurt, We also have a responsibility to speak out with one voice as the disciples did in our stories today. And in our Facebook timelines and the front pages of our newspapers, we're seeing the effects of this kind of collective voice. I think there's, as Julie mentioned, there's some real hope and change found in the Me Too movement. There's a growing awareness and demand for accountability regarding hate and injustice. Um, And i recently seen this um, on Facebook in the news this week, and I put a lot of hope into this collective voice of high school students around the country who are rallying together for gun control, they're demanding change. And they're not a model, they're not all asking for the same thing, but they're taking an action, they're speaking out together. And so these activists, as well as the storytellers and rememberers in our own little communities, are working to remember those who have come and struggled before us, and they also provide us space to act and heal and change, piece by piece, bit by bit. Communities, when they are remembered, When they remember, and they are moved by what has happened before, are necessarily also defenders of human dignity. And we're strongest when we do that work together, as a church, as a family, as a community, as a city. Collective remembrance and telling our own stories, as well as remembering the nature of God, demands this kind of movement. In the final verse of today's scripture, um, it tells us that after the prayer of the people, The place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Again, that buzzword, I love it. In hearing and speaking of the past, the people were moved. The earth moved. This is a symbol that we see throughout Exodus and other texts of the presence of the divine. And this divine presence here encouraged them towards further speech and action. John Chrysostom, as an early church father, aptly observed the place was shaken and that made them all the more unshaken. The people here were firm and decided in a mission to live out the gospel. They were moved and decided to move together in kind. I think for us, we are also required to embody a kind of movement after an act of remembrance. When we hear or repeat a story, something that is real and true and meaningful, that story changes us. They're not left untouched. We then must choose to dismiss it or allow it to shape and direct our own actions. Thoughts and prayers alone are, I think, insufficient in a full understanding of what it means to live within the kingdom of God. I also want to say this doesn't have to look the same for everyone. Immediately after the passage we read for today, we read about how this whole group of believers chose to share their possessions and food and homes in common as a testimony to the Lord to what God has done, to what Jesus is asking of us. And I don't think that it's a mistake that this is the narrative conclusion to our story. These disciples chose to honor what God has and is doing by actively living in a way that is pleasing to God by protecting the brethren and inviting the homeless into their space by feeding one another and praying with one another and sitting with one another. And we can follow up our prayer with action, too. And it doesn't need to look the same for everyone. Sitting and listening and holding someone else's story is just as meaningful as direct action can be in another kind of way. I think it's the movement that matters. It's the desire that matters. And all of this is to say that we can draw strength and inspiration by looking at our own church's family tree, those who came and prayed and acted before, the scriptures that are present for us that we can draw inspiration from and hope from. Remembrance grounds us to our identities and within our relationship with God. Stories of the past, of our human actions and tendencies, and of the responses of God remind us that we are not alone. Acknowledging our past doesn't necessarily ensure that everything will be okay, but we can remember that we will continue to be. We all pray with me. God, I thank you that you are a God of stories, of of a vast myriad of emotions and identities. You can hold all of these things with us. You listen to us, and you provide space for us to tell tell you what we need to say and tell each other what we need to hear. God, I thank you for your words and for the hope that you give us and for the structures that you provide for us to find community. Thank you for who you are, for who your son was, and for who you continue to be today. Amen. Mm -hmm.